right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This will be episode. Uh, where are we here? Uh, Forty-six. Okay, Jason and I are going to be covering the straw man identity. Uh, for those who are not aware, you can take information that was issued you, either depending how old you are, from your birth certificate or your social security number, a combination of both, and look up your straw man identity being traded, uh, basically on the stock market. Jason just did it again for this episode, and an hour or two talks about how anyone can do that, although anyone can research um, to see how to do that. A couple updates. Uh, it's warming up here in Rhode Island, finally. From what I understand, we're going to get one more very slight snow, uh, possibly Sunday, but I will probably be filming through the telescope pretty quickly uh, when it's warm enough to do so. California boys don't go out to film with a scope in 30-degree uh, weather. It's just too brutal for me, and I get worried about the equipment. Uh, not having lived here my whole life, I don't know the ins and outs of keeping my camera and stuff like that safe, and there are concerns. Um, you can bring your equipment in, and condensation can build inside cameras and scopes and things. Also, um, I will probably be recording now each Wednesday, which means roughly Thursdays, in most cases, uh, episodes will come out. But anyhow, that's it. The straw man identity is quite a thing. And I will preface, it's probably prefaced a couple times in the recording I did with Jason. But people who take an interest in this need to understand what's going on if you choose to act on it. The information that we drew, we tried to find a basis or the very foundational reasons uh, that we think there is a there there. Besides the fact we know there is a there there because we can look ourselves up on the stock market being traded uh, with accounts set up on our birthdays. Setting that aside, there's a lot of varying information about this topic, and there are people out there that you can look up who do this full-time. This is what they do. They concentrate on the straw man identity. Um, Jason and I have been aware of this for a very long time, but we do not concentrate solely on this. There are differences in some of the dates you look up, some of the information look look up. We did the best we could to provide the best information that we thought was valid. But again, um, anyone interested should research for themselves and challenge all this and look into it and maybe follow people who do this full time. So there it is. Let's jump into episode 46. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 46 and I have Jason Lindgren with me. We are going to be Covering the straw man identity and boy, I got a rough start here. The straw man identity and basically the fact that the vast majority of the Western world, each individual is a corporation made by your birth certificate and social security number, among other things. But I'm going to preface a couple things before we jump in with Jason here. Um, and I will also say, Jason and I both took time to try to found, find foundationally where this information came from. We'll cover that during the episode. If you're a person who finds interest in what we're talking about, I will put a warning out. You need to understand what you're doing here. Um, we're being told that we can give back our social security number, that we can do all these things to become sovereign citizens, but in very few places do I see anything that talks about what happens when you go to get your car loan to buy your next car and you don't have a social security number anymore and these types of things. And while this is covered in places, I just want to make it abundantly clear, if you choose to go down the road to become a, what's called a sovereign person and no longer a corporate identity, a straw man, you better understand what you're doing. This is not something you do on a whim. Um, anyhow, it appears as with most things in our world, that all things lead to Rome. You can find common law accounts, and I think Jason will cover some of this, that lead back directly to Rome. And as an example, um, if we take crow, you know, the bird, a crow, uh, we all call it crow, and it's just a moniker. It's a way for us to mentally identify this bird so that we all understand, oh, we're talking about a crow. But if you want to categorize it, classify it, and get what is called scientific, hint, 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 you're going to go into Latin, and that's going to take you back to Rome. In the case of a crow, you would use the word corvus, which identifies the genus of the family. Oh, I'm sorry, the genus. And the family would be corvidae. So you can see 
that the foundational language Latin that came to us from Rome, I guess, um, is woven into so many of the official things that we use. And if you want to get scientific about anything, you're going to be using Latin. And the only reason I'm bringing this up is because truly, in many ways, all roads do lead to Rome. Before 1932, or I'm sorry, 33, and I will preface again, 33 changed this country in ways most people can't even imagine. Um, Most things that you bought were backed with real money. In other words, when you gave a dollar, there was supposedly a dollar worth of some precious metal, probably gold or silver, backing that. After 1933, that ceased to be, and we will talk about this. I will also mention that a certificate is a piece of paper that establishes an ownership claim. And if you use the Barron's Dictionary of Banking, you will find um, that this is the actual definition. Registration of births began in 1915. It is supposed that before this date, the common way this was done in most of Western world was that people wrote births and deaths in their Bible and that Presenting that Bible was accepted by all officialdom of who had died and who had been born. That changed in 1915 by the Bureau of Census with all estates adopting the practice by, of course, 1933. I will further point out your corporate ideas in capital letters. And this, in my mind, again, relates to Rome because we are told that Romans only wrote in capital letters. Couple more things to cover before we jump in with Jason. I've talked about this a lot of times. A contract is defined in places as a meeting of the minds. In other words, when two people enter into a contract, for it to for some of the legal definitions you will see, it's supposed that both people understand what they're agreeing to. What we're about to talk to uh, talk about here is real, and you were never told about it. And so the idea that there is some kind of a contract here. It's ludicrous. Um, It's all smoke and mirrors. And even though it is smoke and mirrors, there is a system built up around it to protect the lie. And there are consequences. Also, a marriage certificate or a license states clearly, and I looked this up in a few places, that the product of the union of marriage belongs to the United States. Obviously, you are the product here. Now, before I jump in, there's one more thing. Well, there's two more things. No government or government agency or official organization of any kind can force you to do anything. It can't be done. If you choose not to participate, you cannot be compelled to participate. As a matter of fact, there are plenty of arguments out there that demonstrate that it is not even legal for these types of organizations to try to compel you to do something. This is much of what's behind the straw man identity. Um, you will see words used like divine law or God's law. If you are a person who follows a religion that does not have a God or you are agnostic or, or atheist, it does not matter that we're using the terms God's law here. It's not to it's, it's used in a way that sounds religious, but it's meant to represent every human being as of divine origin. The reason for the straw man identity is to trick you into using the straw man to, in fact, compel you to do things. Lastly, on April 5th, 1933, then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, under executive order, issued on April 5th, 1933, declared... All persons are required to deliver on or before May 1 of 1933 all gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates now owned by them to a Federal Reserve bank, branch, or agency, or to any member of bank or Federal Reserve system. James A. Farley, a postmaster general at the time, was required to post in prominent places the following. Criminal penalties for violation of an executive order. $10,000 fine or 10 years imprisonment or both, as provided in Section 9 of the order. I won't go into what all this means, but it has a huge bearing on the list that Jason's going to present and that we're going to talk about. To cut to the chase, what Franklin Delano Roosevelt, our president, did was illegal. There is no basis in standing, and as as late as 1997, 
there are actual court cases that demonstrate executive orders have little or nothing to do with the public at large, and they obliquely reference what I just told you about the government demanding all the gold back. And of course, this relates to coming off the gold standard. And of course, for those of us who would love to live under common law, common law requires that when we buy, say, a gallon of milk, we present a dollar that is backed by the value of a of a gallon of milk. In other words, gold or whatever that valuable thing might be. This is the wholesale tearing down of the system of trading for value. And to be clear, we no longer pay our debts. We pass IOUs around. But without any further ado, welcome, Jason. Ahoy, Captain Crow. Permission to board the ship. <laughs> That's so funny because I was just telling Jason that apparently Alexander Graham Bell claimed, was it's claimed, did not want to say hello on the phone, but ahoy. And there is a whole reason. Everything in this world relates to the sea, the pirates, and the sea ships of yore, of course, going back to Rome. But anyhow, you put together quite a list here, Jason. Yeah, and you're correct. It all goes back to maritime admiralty. Uh, there's no getting away from it. And um, much of what I hope people will take away from here is what's in a name? What's in a word? Well, everything. 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 Every, everything. Every, damn thing is in a word. The problem here is context, which I've said so many times. You were taught how to say these words. You were taught how to write these words. You were taught how to recognize these words. You were even taught supposed definitions of these words, and yet you were not given the context to understand where these words were derived from, what is held in these words, and what they are relating to. Because if you were taught these things, chances are we would not be having the episode we're going to have today. But do you want to add anything before we jump in? we got a heck of a list to get through here, Jason. No, I'm ready to do it. Go ahead, man. Start picking them off one by one. All right. So to understand the beginnings of the whole straw man identity, we have to understand, in the first place, what maritime admiralty law is, which is where all this comes from, uh, the foundations of which were laid down in ancient Canaan with the, co uh, the Code of Hammurabi and then solidified with the vast territories of the ancient Roman Empire. Maritime Admiralty Law would go on to govern the commerce of the majority of the countries of the world all the way up to today, and believe me, it's everywhere. Right, and we should, I would like to append a little bit uh, to that. When we start talking about ancient Canaan and Hammurabi's Code, there are going to people be people out there who have gone far enough down the road to not be able to take much of the history we've been handed with much more than a grain of salt. The main point here is that if there was a Roman Empire, if there was a Rome in the way we've been told, the road is going there. That's what this is about. So regardless of whether Hammurabi's code was chiseled into a stone in the 1920s by some mason, who knows? Um, I can't tell you. I wasn't there. We can, in fact, point to the Roman Empire. Whether or not it looked like the way we think it looked like, all roads lead there, whatever it was. Yep, exactly. Now, maritime admiralty law, also sometimes called the law of the sea, has permeated all aspects of our culture and language. And most people, as you said earlier, don't even realize it. All this intertwines with what's known as UCC, which is the Uniform Commercial Code, and corporate law. These things are all completely intertwined. The thing that must be understood is that there are two kinds of law because there are two things on the earth. There's water and there is land. Therefore, you have the law of the land and the law of the sea. The law of the land, of course, is the culture of the people living in a particular country or area. The law of, um, therefore, the law of the land is different depending upon where you are. Now, the law of water or law of the sea is universal all over the planet. It's the law of money. And it affects each and every one of us every single day with everything we do when we interact with the quote unquote system. The first one to understand is that water is money. Money is the flow like a current, so we have currency, cash flow. And there's going to be so much more coming that begins to pick apart certain portions of what Jason said. But, I mean, come on, this relates directly to the clip I made where I finally said I think it's likely that space, or what we call space, is water. Um, when I began to look for ways to prove it to myself sufficiently to make the clip, 
I had already gone through all the major religions, which all said water is separated by water by something called the firmament or something along those lines. I had already filmed things like defocusing stars and planets, which gave me the actual identical pattern as water disturbed with a light in it. Uh, I had filmed the lunar wave. I needed another way. And so what I did is I made a prediction that if I took some official narrative in the English language and took it apart and it had and it related to what I was looking at, which at the time was the moon and space and supposed stars and planets, I should be able to immediately decipher maritime language. And as so many who have followed understood, I took part the JFK speech, we're going to the moon. And as so many have heard me say, it says things like we set sail on this new ocean and immediately the maritime language was there. It's inescapable. What we're talking about here is inescapable. Back over to you, Jason. The lunar wave, huh? That sounds like uh there awfully, it is. Awfully nautical as well. <laughs> which, which is a bit ironic because when I first, the first time I ever called it that, I was just trying to describe what I had filmed. Yeah. But it's ironic that these terms uh, just, it, they're all intertwined, man. There's, I mean, if you even think about how our language is put together, how else could you describe the lunar wave? What other word could you substitute for wave? I mean, I imagine some imaginative person might come up with something, but it's not easy. No, it's it's not. So maritime admiralty law all has to do with ships going from port to port, different countries, with goods being bought and sold. Basically, money. All ships are female according to maritime admiralty law. This is where the term also where the term admiral of the navy comes from. The ships are carrying items for money, and we just discussed what money is. Money is water, money is the flow. When a ship pulls into a harbor, it parks at the dock and must present a certificate of manifest to the port authorities, wherever it is stationed at. Why is it manifesting? Because that's a term that's that's used in, in other ways, meaning uh, apparitions, something appearing out of nowhere, because that's what it is. Because the day before, the ship was not there in that port. But today, it is manifested. It's there now. So the certificate of manifest states what goods are being brought into the country, and of course, those are coming from the water. It is a maritime admiralty product. Every ship has a captain, and that comes from the Latin root word caput, meaning head. This is tied into the word capital, which is from Middle English, meaning money, as well as being used as the head of a state. Also keep in mind capital letters, which we will be discussing shortly, uh, that ties into the straw man identity more. Wherever a ship sits when it is in dock is called its berth, B-E-R-T-H, berthing a ship. All the items on the ship, since they came in on water, are a maritime admiralty product. Therefore, under the laws of maritime admiralty law. All of these terms, as we will soon see, are directly tied to what is being done to us every day. <clears throat> There's no getting away from it, and I think you're going to cover this a little more, but if you look at the idea of all ships being female, um, something is being put inside them, and I believe Jason's going to cover the male aspect of the other side of that. You can actually begin to relate it to a man and a woman, but funny thing, I spent time in Japan, as so many uh, understand, because I was in the Marine Corps. Almost every ship there has the moniker Maru. And we will talk about that a bit later as Jason starts to take apart language. It'll happen shortly. Go ahead, Jason. So here's a bunch of words and terms uh, that are all water-related in some fashion. Uh, the first one that everyone's going to be familiar with is merchant, which comes from mer, which is from the Middle and Old English, meaning of or related to the sea. Merchant, water, and yeah. money. <laughs> Well, this relates, you know, you can, anyone can think of mermaid, which echoes what you just said. But now let's get back to what I just said about Japanese ships having the moniker Maru, which is usually spelled M-A-R-U. I think there's variations. But here we're using M-E-R. Well, this also harkens back to Rome, where you can find instances in Old Hebrew and Old Rome where sometimes the vowels are left out of a word. They're implied and can even be switched around. Um, but the overall meaning was still communicated across. Cross. So M-E-R relates directly to M-A-R. In the Latin, you will know that the word mar means sea. 
if you look at maps of the moon, you will see M-A-R-E or Mare or Mar or Mare indicating the sea of tranquility. It would be Mar or Mare of tra tranquility. So you can see the interweaving of what we're about to talk about here. Sorry for stepping on you, Jason. Well, I'm going to go through these one at a time in case you want to add anything. So next up, we have birth, B-E-R-T-H, or birth, B-I-R-T-H. Right. So a ship pulls into a berth or even in the military when I was on naval ships, when you went to your bed, that was called a berth. You can see the direct correlation to the life cycle of human beings in um, what's going on with this language. It's really kind of a devious I don't even know how to phrase it. Um, it's bizarre, to say the least. And not only that, so much of it is imagination-based. So go ahead. Next, we have bail, B-A-I-L, and it's spelled the same when used in multiple terms. The water-based one would be to bail water out of the bottom of a ship if you're taking on water. Or if you're going to prison, you've been arrested, and you need to post bail. Because you're in hot water now. <laughs> yeah, you're sunk, right? Someone needs to come bail your boat out. Yep. Um, this is what I'm talking about. It is so kind of a twisted view of the world that has been built up around us. Um, nature is far, far away from what we're talking about here. This is the precepts of men based in imagination and twisting a system so that it will serve them and them, them alone. Next we have alien, A-L-I-E-N. And a lien, meaning a lien against property or meaning tied up with a debt. Right. And, and we see this all the time, don't we? Anyone who's been a little tardy on their taxes um, gets contacted by what I consider to be a completely illegal organization called the IRS, and they're threatened with liens. Um, so you can see the play in words. What's in a word? Well, what we're talking about here demonstrates some of the things that are in a word. Now, this next one is incredibly important. If you think about it, you'll, you'll realize it. Bench and bank. Ben bench meaning the bench that a judge sits on in a courtroom. But it comes from, again, Old and Middle English, bank. So a bank where the money is, but it's also the banks of a river, a river bank. Again, money, water, flow. That there's no getting away from it. I'll let you keep going because the next one really starts to demonstrate the aquatic nature of commerce. Right. Current and currency. Those those are obviously directly related. Current of a river, current of the water, and the current sea that is flowing throughout the world. Right. And in some of the, the breakdowns that I read, um, the idea of money, financial matters, is that there are ledgers with numbers. The numbers represent basically currency or money in some way, shape or form. The numbers in these ledgers have to move or, or commerce stops. OK, so the idea is these balance sheets have numbers that represent the currency and they literally have to flow because if that flow ever stops, commerce stops. So when we come back to the idea of current and currency, you can really see that there is no aspect of the movement of money in our world that isn't directly related to maritime and aquatic concerns. Now, I, I, we probably should have thrown a preface in here. Not everything we're going over is necessarily exactly 100%. Um, I don't know how to word this. I, I can I can word it for you, Jason. Um, what what Jason's, I believe Jason is trying to point out, is that if you go to start to research this, you're going to find a million tentacles going out in a million directions. The problem becomes is when you find conflicting information, um, what do you do with it? What we have done is tried to boil it down to what seems common sense and try to vet it in some way to a common source that it's at least trustable on some level. Um, if you're going to go through this and you find differing accounts of what we're covering, that's okay. Um, we are pointing out the overall problem, but these symptoms that we're going through may vary. Yeah, and, and the etymology of the words is not arguable. There there are some things in plain black and white that you're going to find repeated over and over and over again, and whatever the source is, it's it's just historical fact. You know, I'm looking up bench and bank, and I'm looking at the etymology of the words, and it's coming from Old and Middle English. Well, that's not really arguable. Right. 
nope, you can look it up in, in numerous places. So obviously, no matter what the reality of all this is, there there is obvious ties to all this. And maybe we don't have it all 100% correct, but it's it's still, it's there. Uh, next up, we have the DOC, D-O-C-K, or the DOC tour. And so, so here it's being tied to health. And what's ironic about that, the way you wrote this, Jason, for doctor is D-O-C, and then you put in parentheses T-O-R. That's interesting to me because the word tor, I believe, has to do with stone. Um, there are monolithic structures that people built called tors, but I believe in nature it also relates to a rocky prominence on a mountain or something. So there you kind of have the Masonic overtone being um, added in there, but there's no getting away from it. A ship comes into a dock. When we get sick, we see a dock tor. Let's see. The definition of tor is a high rocky hill. So there it is. And, you know, I, th I think there's uh, many people be familiar with things in England um, called something Tor. Uh, you know, the whole King Arthur legend seems to circle around a couple of them. You can look it up. If you do an image search for to England and the word T-O-R, Tor, you'll see some of these things that have been named. Yep. Uh, next up, we have the Birth Canal, B-I-R-T-H, which you come down, uh, which and we're going to explain this more later. But that is where you come from. And that's tied aquatically, of course, because people can think of the canals that have been built around the world to allow ships to pass. Exactly. Uh, next one, very, very important. Corpse and corporation. This is a big one because there's no getting away from what's in a word. Um, like the Marine Corps. Um, it's a funny thing. They're, they're spelling it out just the way it sounds, and we know what the word corpse means. It's a dead body. Um, what people need to assimilate here is that a corporation with the prefix corp or corpse, uh, the dead body, is in fact a dead entity. It has no life. It is formed, and then in many cases it is given the rights of a living being. And that is part and parcel of what we're going to get into here. Right. Now, next we have what happens when you need to send a package via UPS or FedEx? They ship it. They're shipping you a package. It's not on water, though. It's on land. But it has to do with commerce. It has to do with money. So, again, you, you see these words coming from the sea being used on land even. So if you're shipping you someone a package, well, that comes from the nautical, doesn't it? Right. And uh, you have a ton of, of examples. Do you want to just run through them or do you want to yeah, piecemeal them out? Well, a lot of people don't even realize this. And, and even when I started looking at this stuff years ago, you, you don't even think about how these things tie together. And just think about these. I'll go through them slow. I won't slam through them. Ownership, worship, citizenship, friendship, kinship, partnership, sportsmanship, scholarship, dealership, courtship. And I'm sure there's a million more I just missed. I, I picked a bunch that mostly were just off the top of my head. Right, and these are just the obvious ones that have the word ship in it, tying our everyday used language to the maritime system that we are talking about. Right. Now, the last term I want to go through, well, there's two more, really. There's very huge significance to the term human resources. Right. And that should be self-evident to the average person, um, but it's not. You see, and this is a context thing. Most of us have worked for corporations where there is a human resources department, but we never take time to look at what human resources mean. It's self-evident. I even found examples of government definitions of the populace being referred to as human resources. In other words, all the people are their resources, but go ahead. Yep. Now, there's a direct correlation, and a lot of, I'm sure a lot of people don't think about this one between these three words, politician, policy, and police. You know, the, these are things that if people want to understand better, they're going to have to look at them a little bit on their own. But um, you'll, you'll find everything from like the word police broken down where they're basically portrayed as parasitic on the populace because they're not enforcing common law. They're in fact enforcing the admiralty law system. So the word lice um, indicating that parasitic nature is in the word police. It's hard to know when you get down to that level how much you can validate it. But nonetheless, words have meaning. And if the word lice is in the word police, um, I don't think you can overlook it out of hand. But again, you have to use common sense when you're when you're going at this. But there's no getting away from it. Politician, policy and police all use a similar styling. And you can look into that further. Right. And here's the thing. The policy is us, as we're going to get to, 
and the police are policing the policy for the politicians. So you can see how all these things intertwine regardless. Right. And it's interesting, too, because you start getting into the idea of what's in a vowel and the old, you know, Roman where there may or may not have been vowels or other ancient languages. And so if you look at a word like policy or politician or police, you can get the prefix poly, which means many. Um, so there's a whole aspect there. And the reason I point this out is there are I don't know if it's a statute. There's going to be lawyers out there that correct me, but there are principles of law that have to do with names that sound alike. And the idea came up that if there was a name and this version, that version sounded alike, could we treat it as the same thing? And what I took away from the reading was, yes, they could. But on the other hand, if two names sounded vastly different, that became a factual problem for a jury to figure out in a court case. Um, so uh, don't be fooled. When you see politician, policy, and poly CE would basically be police, you have to understand that it is quite possible that any word that sounds like a prefix poly is in fact that also representing that idea. Well, and, and when you think about how the English language came about, these things morphed from one thing to another because Old English is very different from Middle and Modern English. And, well, it had to have happened for a reason. It wasn't by accident. That's right. And when you have a word like Y, which is in some ways peculiar, or a letter like Y, which is in some ways peculiar to the English language, at least in usage and the rules that we make around it, um, like I before E, except after, and sometimes Y, whatever the, the thing I'm reaching for that I can't remember is, you can see Y is a weird letter. So it may well be that I held the place or can hold the place. And you're using nothing more than mnemonic sound to, to get there. Right. Now, the last part of the, uh, the background to all this with maritime admiralty law is shipping and manufacturing. And just breaking down those words is, is very telling. Ships or vessels are always female. Always, period, no doubt about it. Manufacturing, manufacturing of the goods, the creation of the goods is male. Now, why is this? The ships are, the, are, the, are delivering the product just like a female delivers the baby in human life. Manufacturing is traditionally uh, the male aspect, and the men would be the ones making the goods. So as you can see, that this was all taken, our, our real-life situations are taken directly out of all these laws. So it's basically, you know, it's almost like saying there's nothing new under the sun. Um, the idea of a parachute, well, someone could go get a dandelion seed and say, well, nature made it first. You know, the seed is just like a parachute. Um, it's this bizarre thing where so much of what we're going to talk about was shaped on the natural world, but it's been perverted, in my view, into this imaginary world where all these tools of men like language, like words, like documents, like certificates, like all these things that men made up have been perversely implemented to mimic a real world and replace it with a false illusory world. And you will even find that in the idea of ships being female, well, of course, they're holding things and it could be called a birth. And in manufacturing, you even have the prefix man. I mean, it is built in lock, stock and barrel. And again, for my money, it is a perversion. Yes. Now, this was what was used universally for all trade for, I was going to say hundreds of years, but in reality, it's probably more like thousands of years. If, if we have that much history, it's hard to know. It, it is. And, and that's why I wanted to preface that earlier. There's a lot of people doing research that history is not what we've been led to believe it is. There's evidence of it, but it's not 100 percent. It's not smoking gun, but there's things that definitely make you go wait a second, something's not right here. Um, I know there's a lot of research being done that there's about a thousand years missing from the, like the early Middle Ages, like the Dark Ages basically didn't happen the way, way they it said it did. And that's because the banking clans wanted to make it look like they always had power and control. In reality, they didn't have it as long as they're portraying. Right. And there's another side to this, too, that's been moving forward. Um, and it was actually e echoed in the movie The Matrix at one point where uh, the the digital entity Smith tells Morpheus, we've been classifying you humans on this planet. Turns out you're not mammals. Um, you're viruses. You act. The only other thing that lives here that acts like you do is a virus. You basically come to a place you 
have kids, have kids, have kids, make more, make more, make more, use up all the resources, then you have to move to a new place. It's an echoing of, of the idea um, about what our history is. And the only reason I mention that is because there are people out there working to kind of show that human beings don't act or inhabit places in this world like every other living thing here. Um, whether or not these things have merit, I guess, will shake out over time. But there is a foundational reason to think about these things. Now, the Matrix is interesting to bring up, and there's probably a good point for it. Everyone should think – I'm sure most people have seen the movie. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of like Star Wars. Just about everyone's seen it. The movie is nothing but allegory for all this stuff. Uh, That's so, right. Supposedly, Keanu Reeves, before he was allowed to even read the role of Neo, had to read a bunch of uh, back material that all kind of wrapped around this sort of thing. So the Wachowski people who did this originally – Apparently, we're really in the know, and why they put this out here, I don't know. I didn't really look into heavily about about them. Obviously, they had to have been aware, and all of the it, it's basically it's maritime admiralty law and what's being done to us wrapped up in a science fiction story. Yeah, who knows? You know, maybe all these big movers and shakers and directors and people from Hollywood, maybe these are people who are what are called sovereigns. Maybe they are not subject to the corporation. Um, it's a hard thing to know, but clearly, uh, well, and I'll put this a different way. In my view, um, the movie The Matrix is a bit like the third law of alchemy, where you temporarily tip your hand and expose what was previously hidden, which also plays somehow, I think, into the Talmudic idea that if you simply set a trap for someone and they had no way to know that they were walking into this trap, then there would be backlash on you from having set that trap in that way. But if you drop little hints and secrets and do these other obscure things that an intelligent person should pick up on, then you're completely free and clear. He went into the trap, but it's not really your fault anymore. That's kind of a labored explanation of what I'm trying to get across, but I think you understand what I'm getting at. And in a way, that's how I view the movie The Matrix. And it is a hell of an allegory, and I guess people will argue to the end of time uh, how close to reality it actually is. I mean, there are people out there trying to argue we're laying on a table and our minds are creating this place. The problem is, is how do you ever prove that? Right, and there, and there isn't. But if you take it at a little more face value, the idea that Neo is in The Matrix, meaning part of the system, Right. So Mr. Anderson, Tom Anderson was his name, is his corporate identity. Relating it to this stuff, it would be Tom Anderson in all capital letters, where Neo is his natural name. His That's the name he chose. That's that's who he is identifying himself, his spiritual being, his flesh and blood man. But we're going to get to all that. Right. And, and in the movie, endlessly, the word city is displayed. I think one of the hotels is heart of the city. I might be getting this wrong. There's a heart of the city somewhere, but you see city time and time again. Well, of course, this relates to the idea of being a citizen, um, and basically a citizen in the common, common usage means you're a slave, a debtor slave. But go ahead, Jason. So as I was saying, all of this would be held with all countries, like everything to do with money and trade and all that. This would be all the countries, but we're going to focus on, on the United States. So going from all this ancient history up to 1790 we have the permanent capital for the United States being decided upon by George Washington and the rest of the founding fathers. So it's been decided that an, a 10-square-mile area by the River Potomac is going to be where the capital is going to be, and it's, the Was it's going to be called Washington, D.C., District of Columbia. Now, we're not really going into all of the behind-the-scenes stuff of what Columbia is, but I'm just going to throw this one out there for anyone who wants to do some homework. Columbia, Columbia University, Columbia Broadcasting System, also known as CBS with the all-seeing eye, the Space Shuttle Columbia, and there's there's plenty more. Columbus, who discovered America. <laughs> right. There's significance, again, to these words, and I'm not, we're not going into that in this show, but that's something we could probably look into later. There There is extreme significance why these people chose these words. And the one thing a lot of people seem to not even recognize other than like a cursory glance at it is that the majority of the founding fathers were high ranking not just porch masons but high ranking freemasons 
there's no getting away from it, um, the, the the influence of masonry. Anyone can go look at the layout of D.C. They can even go look at the, the major, uh, I guess what would be called the Masonic Temple there, and, and compare it to other ones around the country. You can see that the founding of this country was tied heavily to Freemasonry. Um, I've even seen work by people trying to demonstrate that George Washington was actually King George. And while I don't know how you actually ever prove a thing like that, it would not surprise me in the least because this plays into the whole Hollywood idea of an actor changing his name, changing his clothes, changing his appearance, and taking on a new role. We know this goes on. We see it all the time. We even see a lesser version of this in crisis acting in the false flags. And in some cases, people are trying to actually implement actual actors that we have seen in movies or TV shows taking part in these events. Again, I'm not sure how these things are going to get proved out, but there sure seems to be a basis there. Absolutely. Now, George Washington, who was a high-ranking Freemason, he appoints someone he knew, another fellow Freemason named Pierre L'Enfant, to devise a plan for the new city. Now, I have no idea what the connection may be, but in this whole Pizzagate scandal that's been going down the past few months, the guy's name was L'Enfant. I have no idea what the tie is in there, but when that ju- when I saw that, that jumped out at me. Well, I think I can take a stab at it. It's just more false news um, being introduced. I think, I think if I'm not mistaken, and I didn't look at it, uh, the minute I saw the Pizzagate stuff, I realized the Ring of Truth was not in it and ignored it for and categorized it for what it is. It's nonsense. It has no bearing on my existence. Uh, my point was would be is it seems like that one came to us a little more online than it did through mainstream sources, um, and that's just an observation on my por- part. Yeah, I believe the mo- majority of that whole situation was was an online thing and i also think that's where they got the whole fake news meme that they now tout everywhere right and it, it, exactly um and, and we'll see where the fake news thing goes but clearly there is no effort being made to stop fake news um the news is there to be fake and if you see laws passed that address fake news it's going to be aimed at people like me or others who are challenging the nonsense that we're given by the, the mainstream at the end of the day um Uh, The problem here is going to be that online sources are going to start to blur in with mainline sources, and uh, it's going to be more difficult for the average person to start to unravel whether they should pay attention to a thing. And I would point out the easiest way to go at the nonsense that comes at us is to simply assess it and say, does it have a bearing on my life? You can make it have a bearing on your life. You can be a person who's concerned with whatever the hell Trump does or whatever the hell any official place does. Or you can understand that you're a divine human being living in this world and really you could ignore it and it wouldn't make a bit of difference in your day. If you can get to that point, you can begin to not even bother whether it's true or false and just set it aside. Over time, you will be able to hear the ring of truth and things if you set your mind in that direction. Well, a lot of this I I also think is just more distraction because the things that are really important that are being done to us is what we're discussing here. There's no doubt that – and I'm going to tell you what I found later. These things – the whole money thing is a reality. The fact that we're a human resource is a reality. I proved it to myself once 10 years ago and I've discussed it on this show before and I did it again and I'll explain that in a little bit. And, and anyone can do this. And, you know, Jason sent me what he's talking about um, and, and, you know, demonstrated for himself again. There's really no arguing that you are a corporation being traded as chattel. Um, you can't argue it. And anyone who wants to replicate what Jason did can see that they, too, are, are listed. So go ahead, Jason. All right. So in 1801, the Congress passes the District of Columbia Organic Act which incorporates the, des- the designated territory, and it places it under control of the United States Congress. So is that the United States of America Congress or the United States Congress? It, at that point, it still would have been the United States of America. Now, right. in the original setup of everything was that each state was its own country. That is, it's in the Constitution and all that. And the federal government actually wasn't supposed to do that much. That's not the way they originally intended it to be. So when you were a citizen, you were born to a citizen of the individual state, almost like you were from your own country. You know, like if you're born in France, you're not from England. And that's the way they initially uh, did it. That's why it was called the United States of America, because these states were united on the continent of America. And this is also extremely important, as we're going to see. 
Right. And and the point I was making and what he and by the way, I would also say the idea of becoming a citizen echoes back to Rome. So many f- people are familiar with a slave or a person in the army serving or doing something or being freed and then becoming a citizen or the idea that Rome would conquer places, but they wouldn't subjugate them, so to speak. They would have a path to citizenship. All these ideas are going back to Rome. But the idea of whether or not you say the United States of America or the United States is a big deal. Um, In my view, it indicates the corporation, which is the United States, or the original idea, if there was such a thing, called the United States of America. And this feeds directly into things like our military. Do you call the Navy? What do you call the Navy? Well, you don't call it the United States of America Navy. You'll never see it written anywhere that way. It's usually USN, and usually that is United States Navy. So you can see that even the military is relating to the corporation, which is the United States, and I think Jason will cover the dates of this later. Yes. Now, that was used as the capital, and various uh, things went on to uh, cause a lot, a lot of drama, basically, over the years. But we get up to the Civil War. Now, in school, we're taught that – mainstream school, I should say – we're taught that the Civil War was fought over slavery. In, in reality, that wasn't really – it was part of it, but it was, certainly was not the, the majority of it. It all came down to taxes and money, as all things always do. Uh, a lot of this had to do with debts to the, to the foreign banks and the, the southern states because of their rich plantations and all that had actually paid off the debts – and they were being taxed in a way that uh, were the same as the northern states who still owed debts, and they didn't like that. And um, the whole f- flames of this were being fanned by, of course, the, the British aristocracy and all that. They, they were pushing them to, to secede because they were getting, from, from what we can gather, they were getting scared about the, the power that this fledgling country was developing. Now, um, it's been admitted in different documents and all that that they were trying directly to fracture the Union, having meetings, getting together with the, the, the senators and all that from the South, and just pushing, pushing, pushing. So knowing that the, the money available was uh, nowhere near to cover the costs of fighting this giant war that eventually broke out, as we, as we know in mainstream, we have President Lincoln of the Union seeking loans from banks, and a lot of them are from New York. These banks wanted to charge the United States country interest rates of between 24 and 36 percent, which is just, uh, that's uh, loan sharking. That's the, that's us- yeah, it's usury. I think the old definition for usury was anything above 4 percent, um, which of course doesn't apply to anyone anymore because hardly anyone gets a 4 percent interest rate anymore. Right. You have to have very good credit and or you know ties. You have to have, have good connections. So the banks in New York, of course, had very close ties, pretty much were part of the same international banks that, that uh, the Rothschilds and all of them already had control of. So – this kind of automatically shows that the that the interests being played off here are are there. They they wanted to get the South to fight against the North, so they were not going to just hand them the money over that they were doing to, uh, funding the South. So you you can see right there that that backs that up. I, I have a little bit of issue, and I know that. There will probably be people who who may be at odds with some of the things you've said because there are differing versions. But here's here's my. Here's my stance on history and on every war we've ever been told about that mattered. They didn't. They don't. They don't happen in the way we've been told. And even if there was some basis that actually did happen, like we assume there were probably some basis to World War II, we can demonstrate over and over again that things like Hiroshima, the movie that was made around that, December seventh, um, it, it all came out of Hollywood. It's a construct. It's designed to do one thing, to propagandize the people. And so I will again say the old tired quote, history is a lie agreed upon, but I I will just preface all that because what we're doing here is accepting a version of history. And from my point, although I know we have to have a basis to have the conversation, I accept not a single portion of history or wars for that matter, because it appears to me that almost all war is really about money at the base of it. Um, they, they don't happen in the way that we think they did in the image that's been painted in our mind. And I didn't mean to really derail everything because I know we need a basis to talk about things, but I wanted to get that in there. No, and I actually agree with you 
everything is always over money. That's what all of this research, and I already knew this, but, you know, revisiting all this and just how much I, I, I read and went into, listened to videos, read articles, it all comes back to money. And you're right. We don't know about the true history, and it just – we have to have some kind of basis to discuss this on. So – I'm not saying that this is gospel. I, I don't know. We weren't there. Um, we're just going off of this to, to have a basis to discuss it in the first place. Right. But I think it's OK to do some of it because you're getting ready to say, well, Congress passed this on this date. Um, those are in a record somewhere. So regardless of whether the actual event occurred in the way that's being stated, we have the idea that it did. And all of these ideas play into this imaginary system. And therefore, there is a basis to address them in the way they're presented. Right. So, and, you know, we don't know if any of these things are as portrayed, but it is what it is, and we do have the laws and all that that are written down, and that's what we're going to be getting to here. Right. So it's suggested by Lincoln to Lincoln to print unbacked fiat currency to deal with the situation. Now, this normally was a big no-no. You didn't, you didn't just print money. Because up until this point, money in the United States was derived from gold and silver, and it's actually in the Constitution that, you know, it's it's gold and silver coins. You know, this is a, a strange point because I have seen people in the modern past couple of years making the argument that part of the reason that the West is going so hard on the Muslim nations is that there are still Muslim nations that follow, and, and I'm, I haven't researched this, but what I have heard is that there's a tenet of, I don't know if it's Sharia law or Islamic law or what it would be, where when they do trade, their money has to be backed by something of value. I've had people respond to me on this point, and they pointed out a few nations that still do require this. If this is true, this is exactly what happened to us, where people went at us to tear apart our currency because common law dictates that when we trade, it has to be backed by something of value. We no longer do that. We trade IOUs, banknotes. If there are places in Islam that are still doing this, and again, I haven't researched it, then that is a darn good reason for suggesting that why we go at Islam so hard in the West is to start to undo this because they cannot implement their maritime game on a place that still is trading money that is backed by something of value. It's also interesting that they uh, got the whole Middle East tied up with the uh, petrodollar. Right. Because around the same time is when, and we're going to get to this in the timeline, but one that was taken off the gold standard, or the gold window as they were calling it, uh, it, it completely separated the fiat currency from anything that always had a tangible value. So that's, that's also incredibly significant. Of course. And I mean, you could, you could, you know, take it apart. So when some Middle Eastern oil bearing nation sells oil to the West, do they say, okay, here's your so many barrels of oil, we need this much gold back? Or is it done by banks? Because if it's done by banks, they're trading IOUs. But you, know, you can see the construct here. Um, and I would suggest that they're probably trading IOUs, although I was flat out told by people in, in certain parts of the world that there are a, a number of nations, I don't remember how many, not, not a lot, that are still as part of their religious tradition, demanding that their currency is backed by something of value, usually gold or silver. I haven't looked this up in, in quite some time, but I do believe there's only two or three countries left on the planet that actually don't have a central bank that's tied in to the international banks, you know, like the Federal Reserve and then Bank of England, all them. Those are all, they really flow into one place. And, and that is what's kind of at the heart of all this is this is how they control the world per se because it all has to do with the banks being intertwined all over the planet yeah and i and as you said that i, I started I, you know i thought i'd heard maybe five countries it would not surprise me to know that there are only a couple left if that's actually a true statement man talk about having a target on your back could you imagine being one of the officials high up officials in one of those countries you know what's coming down the road well, that's, I think, exactly the point. Uh, I haven't, like I said, I haven't read this in a while, but I think it was like five a few years ago, and now we're down to three. But 
uh, people can fact check me on that. I didn't actually look into that for this research. But it's always these countries that, quote unquote, need freedom. And in goes the United States Army, you know, <laughs> the damn Yankees, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone needs to go listen to that song and, and understand what it's about. Yeah. So Congress passes the first Legal Tender Act on February 21st, 1861 initially issuing $150 million in United States notes. And this is because they didn't have money to give the soldiers and all that. And, and this kind of can be backed up with a lot of photographic evidence and all that. The soldiers on both sides, but more so the North, looked very poor. Like like the, the uniforms weren't consistent. The, the weapons weren't consistent. They weren't, you know, they were skinny and, and just, you know, they almost were, were malnourished. And I went to a Civil War museum here in... Uh, that was in New Orleans not too long ago. And I'm looking at it, and it's really interesting because all the uniforms are, are tiny. It's like these people were so much smaller, not not even just skinny, but short. Um, malnutrition must have been a big deal in the, in the 1800s. Right, if you accept it at face value. Um, the Civil War is one of the things I looked at, and what I came away with was I can't trust any of it. It's a construct. There are too many problems, even in the photographic evidence. And one of the rules of thumb I use is I'm a human being. If I meet another human being in my travels in this world, chances are they're similar to me. Um, we've been handed the idea that these poor saps back in the 1800s only lived till they were 45. How can that be? They were eating organic food and pure water. Um, the idea is that their medicine was less and all these other ideas that are planted in my head. I don't accept it. We can go back to these same periods and find people with white beards imaged. Um, there are too many holes in what we find about these events. So for my part, I, ju I just can't accept it as a valuable thing. Well, Looking at all this material again, it, it did make me think of, of my trip to the Civil War Museum. And I even remember thinking back to uh, – I remember when I went to the American History Museum in Philadelphia years ago. The same thing is what I noticed. The people were a lot smaller. And I mean a lot smaller. Like you don't see too many short, like five, five and under, maybe 100 pounds at the most kind of people. Now, is it because you know we're a bunch of fat-ass Americans now eating crap food? I'm sure that has a lot to do with it. But I really do wonder, like, how is there such a significant difference just in 100, 150 years? And I don't know if you have anything to actually back up any of that, um, and if, but if so, I'd like to hear it. No, it would be an interesting thing to look at because then again, we can go back and find accounts of, you know – special people who ended up ruling armies or ruling other things where they're said to be six foot. They're big and they're, you know, powerful people and they take control of these systems. Um, I have never really truly looked at the idea of stature of people, but it would be an interesting thing to look at. We should put it on the docket, Jason. Um, we, we should go back and go over photographic evidence and what kind of historical, for whatever it's worth, evidence we find and see if we actually find a basis that we can believe in to any degree or trust to any degree is a better way to say that, uh, to, to discover is there any reality to this idea that these poor saps that lived in the past were small, they died younger, they weren't healthy, they didn't have good medicine, all these ideas, because currently I don't accept them. Right. Now, well, something was up because I saw the uniforms and they were, I mean, unless they were just relic really well, I mean, it's been there for decades in this museum. Something was up with it. They, the, the uniforms were definitely all the clothing, everything. It was just, they were, it was small. I guess you could argue it either way. Um, you know, well, we, we're fatter now and we're not walking around and doing all the things that kept them thin. But you could also look at it as a point of view that maybe you're looking at costumes. Um, I just don't know how to go at that. But I do know I have looked at the Civil War to some degree. And what I find is a lot of problems. And it's no different from World War II, bear in mind. And a lot of people have a problem with that. But I'm sorry. Um, you can be a person who reads a history book and say, OK, that's my new truth. That doesn't work for me. I have to go look at a thing and take it apart and see if I can hear the ring of truth or see anything of value in it. And so much of what we take apart is a construct. And in my mind, it's a demonstrable construct. You know, there's one thing I can tell you before we uh, finish this part off. I was looking for a, I was trying to get a World War II jacket of some sort, like a, 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 flat, a field jacket, like one of the green kind of um, something along the lines of what John Lennon wore because I'm a big 60s fan. And the majority of the jackets I kept uh, coming up with were like smalls and mediums, and I have I'm 
five foot eight and I'm built kind of kind of big. I have like a 46 inch chest, so these things wouldn't even fit me. So again, that jumped out at me. It's like, wow, are all these people real tiny, skinny guys? Yeah, well, it's clear they were walking further and probably more manual labor and this kind of idea with less machines to to do it or a car to get you where you're going. So I think we understand their fit. But I mean, you can even look. I would invite anyone to go back and look at movies from the 70s. Um, We were commenting, my wife and I, the other day, um, having remembered looking at some of the game shows that were around in the 70s, how much hair people had. Um, And we started to try to take it apart where we just seeing someone who had a lot of hair or was this evident across large populations of the game show. So we went back and looked at match game as an example online. And there were a hell of a lot of people with a hell of a lot of hair. But what's more is when you look at the movies, there are many, many fewer heavy obese people, many people that look more as in shape individuals. And so this again could probably relate to what's happened with our corporatization of food. But anyhow, we are at the top of the hour. And uh, one thing I want to mention before we do the break, Jason, is that we're going to actually tell people how in the second hour, how you can look yourself up um, using the identification number that was given you early in life for most of us to discover whether or not you're being traded on the stock market as chattel or as a corporation that you never agreed to be part of. Um, Do you have anything to add, Jason? Well, I'm just going to finish up this last point that uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of these greenbacks were printed up during the duration of the Civil War. And this is the first example of inflationary issues versus gold back, the gold-backed dollar or other gold-backed currencies arising, which is what we see later on in the 20th century. So this is a big example, a big early example of what can happen with a fiat paper-only monetary system that's huge. Yeah, sorry for cutting the end of that off. I forgot we're in the middle of a thought there as we did it. But what you're saying here is these are the seeds for what comes to fruition in 1933, basically, right? Absolutely. Um, So there it is. Um, And whether or not these counts are true, these are the ideas that have been put in the official historic record. So these ideas have a bearing on our existence. So to me, it doesn't really matter whether it went down the way they said it went down. The idea that we all live with is there. And in my view, there is no portion of our reality that is not preceded by mind. Our mind makes the world we live in. I've talked about it and tried to demonstrate it in different rate ways previously. One of the ways is you go out with a group of people, five of them have a great time, one of them has a horrible time, and that's how it's remembered on both sides of that statement. And so that is another proof that that mind precedes it all. Um, your state of mind is shaping the reality, and that's why I think the basis for the ideas that have been accepted as historical rep- record have a real basis here. Um, whether or not they occur in the way they said they occurred, I'm not sure how we ever get to a point to prove that without a time machine, and I doubt if that's coming anytime soon. So do you, do you have anything you want to add before we go to break and come back for the second hour? The second hour is going to be huge because this is where we're going to go into what I found, how you can do it, and literally what it all means. And it's not just the United States. It's everywhere. Anywhere with a central bank, this is being done to some degree or another. So hopefully you all join us there, and we're going to break this all down. So what you're saying, Jason, is you're going to provide the way that you did what proved to you this stuff was true, and that basically comes down to finding your corporate identity being traded on the stock market. Yeah, and it's not even that hard. I mean, I literally just looked it up. Now, the original way I did it 10 years ago seemed to have changed a little bit, but after just a very small amount of research, I found out how to do it again, and you can too. Right, and there there is a growing movement afoot. And again, I'm not going to tell you whether this is a valid movement, but it is a growing movement of people who are claiming there is a way you can give your Social Security number back to the government and do all these things with the debt that was attached to that straw man identity. I'm not going to tell people that's a true thing. You're going to have to go out on your own and make your own decisions about that because anyone who wants to act on this is going to make drastic changes to their life. Anyhow, that brings us to the top of the hour for episode 46 where we're covering the straw man edition. There it is. I hope to see you for the second hour on Crow 777radio.com for members. Cheers. <laughs> 